Welcome to the Queer Voices Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Larissa Russell. Join us today and each week as we talk to people from the LGBT plus community to share their stories, the good, the bad, and the inspirational. Sharing stories, making connections, saving lives. Welcome, I'm Larissa Russell of Queer Voices, and today I have with me Mike Iamelli. Mike thought he was straight his entire life, but a life-changing illness forced him to challenge that notion head-on when he fell in love with his male caretaker. And the two of them went on a years-long journey to explore sexuality and fluidity to figure out if the relationship could work. When he chose to blog about his relationship, he had no idea that 100,000 people would share the post overnight, and he'd wake up to millions of people talking about his sex life. So welcome, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yes, that's quite an intro. Um, So that's my story, really, that I, um, you know, I, at the point in my life, I woke up one day and I was vomiting blood. I was about 25 years old and um, I just kept vomiting blood for months. This didn't stop. Um, I went to different doctors. They didn't know what was wrong with me. Um, I've been diagnosed with a few different things. But it got to such a point that I actually had an accident at work. So I quite literally shit my pants at work. It was the most devastating moment of my life. Um, I couldn't leave the house for a while because of this. I couldn't eat food. I was hospitalized a few times for fluids. And while all this was going on, I had two roommates. One of them had a boyfriend and she was not there most of the time. Another was a random guy I knew from college. And so just by chance, he was A, home. And B, he was on residency, so he knew the medical system. And so he kind of became my de facto caretaker. And he would drive me to appointments or pick up medication, um, sometimes cook dinner because I couldn't even cook dinner. And I remember about, you know, maybe two or three months into this process, I realized I started developing feelings for him. And at the time, that felt strange because up until that point in my life, I had never been with a man, to my conscious knowledge, never been interested in a man. And I kind of thought, you know, is this like a desperation thing? Like, am I just afraid I'm going to die and there's like a human within proximity and this is a connection? And so I didn't really know what to think. But at the same time, I knew that I had been, you know, doing every form of therapy to try to heal myself, including writing handwritten letters to every member of my family, telling them everything I never said out loud. And I thought like, okay, if I'm speaking up to everybody around me, you know, at any other point in my life, I'd probably brush this under the rug and just let it pass. But if I really am scared, I'm going to die. And if I really am speaking up everywhere, I've just got to say something to him. And it didn't feel sexual. It didn't feel even romantic, but it felt like there was a connection here. There was intimacy. And so I just one day got up the nerve and I said, Garrett, I don't know how you'll feel. I don't know if you're going to want to punch me in the face. I don't know what, but I feel something here. I feel like there's a connection here. And I'm fortunate in that Garrett is probably the most thoughtful person in the world. And so he was like, okay, um, let me sit with this. Like, I don't know. I'm confused, but let me sit with this. And, you know, right now we are condensing months worth of conversation into a few minutes. So everything's glamorous in retrospect. But um, we started talking about this and figuring out kind of relationship work. And, you know, for the first about year or two, we um, still dated women. We were not exclusive with one another. We were exploring um, intimacy that could feel right to us. What the, I mean, we used pornography to explore 
um, potential desires without having to physicalize. There were lots of things we did. And through that process, we decided that we were a real couple, that this was real, this felt good to us. And so I had left my job because when you're vomiting blood, something is wrong. So I decided to leave my job and I started my own business. And at about the time I left my job, um, we decided to tell our families about this. And so we told our families about it. And then a few months into my new job, I got a book deal. A publisher just reached out to me and said, can I give you a book deal out of nowhere? And it was really more to do with, um, I was very successful at a young age and I got sick. And so it was really to do with success isn't what it's cracked up to be. But in the process of writing this book, my publisher, who was queer herself, really wanted me to talk about my relationship. I said, okay, okay. So I wrote this, I, said, I thought, it's all right, I'll deal with it when it comes out. And then I turned to the manuscript and I thought, oh shit. Like I have to tell people in my life. I mean, they can't find out on the shelves of Barnes and Noble. I have to tell, sure my family and close friends know, but why a network of people don't? And so I thought, well, I'm a writer and I would so much rather everybody read about it, talk shit behind my back, and then come to me. And I don't have to deal with all of their stuff. They can all process without me. And so I said, I'm just gonna blog about this on my little blog, you know, it got a little bit popular, but it was not that big. And I figure I'll tell people in my life, that will be the end of it. And so I wrote this blog post and I went to bed. And when I woke up, 100,000 people had shared it. And it was, you know, I can't quite explain to you how overwhelming it is to wake up to millions of people talking about very intimate details of your life and being emailed incredibly um, intimate personal questions that you never thought you would be asked in your life. And, you know, it was a really interesting moment for me because I am still not, but at the time I definitely wasn't much of a social media person. And so the only pictures I had on Instagram, I did have an Instagram, but it was because there was a scavenger hunt and it was a wild goose chase and you got extra points if you posted a sad selfie anytime you went to the wrong place. And I was not willing to let go of those points. So I did this. And so all these people are coming to my social media like, where are the sexy photos of you and your boyfriend? And it's just 20 pictures of me looking really sad. And so like this was, it was a really, you know, surreal experience because we had, you know, people, I mean, millions of people, I had literally thousands of emails. We had people who were, um, I think there's a novel, a fictionalized version of our story out there somewhere. Um, there was a play being written. I have no idea if that came to fruition or not. Um, you know, th there was a stalking situation, so we actually had to deal with that. So it became very surreal, and there were all of these people saying, like, you have the perfect relationship. I was like, whoa, whoa, like, A, we might break up. I have no idea. And then there was a whole another crowd of people saying, um, you know, like, I don't believe your sexuality. And so here I am trying to defend a sexuality that, quite frankly, I wasn't clear on, and I'm still exploring for myself and doing it in a very public way. And I will tell you with certainty, my ther therapist got a few phone calls that week, but with certainty, had this not been you know, eight years ago now, I probably wouldn't be talking about it as publicly as I can today because it was, you know, I had phone calls from NPR. I was on NPR and Huffington Post and Yahoo News. And it got to a point where I just refused to talk about this and kind of shut it out because I thought I did interesting work. And the only thing people ever wanted to talk about was my relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that's really interesting because, you know, everybody wants your their business to grow. And this was like this amazing viral post that really had nothing to do with your business, right? Right. So, 
Right, nothing. And like nobody wanted to hear about my business, right? They all wanted to hear about this. And it was an interesting moment because I saw like the sellout opportunity right there in front of me. You know, there were people promising me book deals if I wanted to talk about this and headlining pride parades, which I felt so underqualified for. And I was like, I am not a spokesperson for, I'm still exploring the community and I'm just coming in here. And so, you know, it was a really a moment where I had to decide like I'm pulling back and I am not being public and I'm really exploring what's authentic and true for me. And so it's interesting that in some ways coming out kind of forced me to explore other parts of my life and actually pull back on that part of my life because of what happened. Mm-hmm. So did it end up affecting your business in the long run? Like, because now all these people know who you are. Did it help you? Uh, you know what? Probably not well, because I think that when I started, you know, I think I had a lot of trauma, quite frankly, around the queer community. And I, not, although I did have, you know, incidentally queer clients, it wasn't that I was specifically targeting working with that community because because of some of the, you know, stalking and some of the situation, the sexualizing situations that really made me uncomfortable at the time. So now I'm finally opened up and have specifically been supporting a lot more queer people. And um, I think a lot of people are like, yeah, your story's passed. Like if you came here eight years ago, there would have been a lot more leverage. So probably not, quite frankly, but so it goes. But you're still in this relationship eight years later. I am still in this relationship. We are married. We've been married now for about three and a half years. We've been together for over nine years at this point. That's awesome. And so you said you have an interesting engagement story. Oh, yeah. This is a story. So, you know, we were exploring our relationship. And I didn't know. We still hadn't figured out the physical. But about six months into our relationship, I knew I wanted to marry Garrett. And the reason I knew I wanted to marry him is it was one night, um, I was just starting to get a little bit better, and I was able to go out for the first time, and it was a friend's Christmas party. So I went to a Christmas party, and Garrett was still on residency, so he was working until midnight, this like 12 or 16 hour day, and he couldn't come. And so I went over there, and it was a part of the city that is notoriously bad for parking. So like you cannot find a spot here, it's all cobblestone streets, and it was a snowstorm that night. And I was at this party, and at about 1 a.m., I was getting ready to go home, and I looked over, and Garrett was sitting alone in his scrubs in the corner. And I thought, like, what the heck? Like, you just got out of work. You've worked this long day. Why would you come all the way across the city, find parking in the section in a snowstorm to sit in the corner? That doesn't even make sense. And he said, you know, you're right. I got out of work, and I was so exhausted. And I knew that when I got home that... It would be so late and you'd have to take a bus home that I would probably be asleep by the time you got home and I wouldn't get to see you. And I thought, I deserve something for myself today. So I drove across the city to just sit in the corner and watch you tell stories because I could watch you tell stories all night and I could drive you home and be with you and get to see you before I go to bed. And I thought, oh shit, now I have to marry this man. So I, I knew I had this vision in my mind that I was proposing to him on a balcony overlooking the Mediterranean on the Amalfi Coast. So Garrett had never been to Europe, and the first time he saw the Mediterranean, I wanted to propose. And I had planned this out. Now, I had my own emerging business. I wanted this to be a surprise. Not easy for me to hide thousands and thousands of dollars and not seem stressed out about it. So I did not get this off the ground for four years. Four years after that, I finally had it together. And so I said, hey, Garrett, in like four months, can you just take a week off of work? And he's like, oh, why? He's like, oh, it's nothing big. We're just going to do a little something. I said, okay, now I have four months to figure out how to pay for the rest of it. But at least I've got the tickets. And so I knew I wanted to ask for his parents' blessing. 
And so I um, pretended I was going to a yoga retreat about a month before we left. And I flew down to Philly where his ex-girlfriend lived because I wanted to include her. She was an important part of his life. And she drove me to their parents' hometown. Very weird, weird weekend. I don't think anyone should hang out with their in-laws without their spouse, but we're not talking about that today. So that's a whole story. So I get home and I so badly wanted to tell Garrett about the story because it was the weirdest weekend you can imagine. They gave their blessing lovingly though. And if they're listening, well, hopefully they aren't. But um, so anyway, I knew Garrett was going to check flight tracker and I just thought, crap. Like, he's going to know I'm not in the airport. I'm, I said I was in Syracuse. I was in Philly at the time. So I just tried to lie my way out of this whole thing, saying, like, oh, of course I'm not in the air. It must be broken, whatever. I kept saying, I have Uber credit. Don't pick me up. But I knew who was going to. Long story short, we got out of that somehow. Now, the week before we leave, literally every person we're talking to is bringing up Italy out of nowhere. And then worse than that, here's the bad part about it, they say like, oh shit, and then they stop talking. I was like, no, 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 that's it's so much worse. Like, just please. So I'm convinced Garrett's going to know. But somehow we're there. I don't think he quite knows. And I keep telling him, you know, pack like we're flying or driving. So I wouldn't put a knife in your carry-on, but like I'm not telling you where we're going. And the weather wasn't very warm, unfortunately, in Italy that week. So I said, we're not going far. Pack like whatever you wear around here. And so the one question he said he had to know the answer to was, does he need his passport? Now, in life, nobody needs their passport on any given day. I knew where Garrett's passport was. I was all prepared for this. However, the day, the day we were leaving, he started teaching at a university and needed his passport for tax reasons. The only day he's ever in his life needed his passport. And I was like, oh my God, you're going to have your passport on you. And so he said, tell me the truth. Will I need my passport? I don't want to bring it and then lose it. And I thought, Mike, you just got to commit at this point. You know what? No, no, no. You don't need it. I don't want you to lose it. Why don't you go put it away? Go start packing the car. I'll be down in a second. I sprinted into that bedroom, grabbed that passport, zipped it up as he's coming up the stairs. I'm out of breath. I was like, okay, let's head down. No, 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 not that car. I mean the Uber I just ordered. So we get in the Uber, and you know the great thing is you can put in your destination without having to verbally tell the driver. So it's like, okay, good. We can like organize this. So we're headed towards the airport. Garrett doesn't know where we're going. And I think he probably was figuring it out. And I am psychotic, if you can't tell by this point in the story. So I am studying the blueprint of the airport. Because in Boston, Terminal E is international. I couldn't get dropped off of Terminal E because he'd know it was international. But I learned there was a passageway from C to E that I could walk through and see host JetBlue, which we fly often. So we get dropped off at JetBlue. We get out. I go over to the kiosk and I say, oh my God, fuck, fuck, shit. He's like, what is it? What did you forget? I was like, uh, just hold this. And I start giving him his passport. He's like, why would you bring your passport? Wait, that's my passport. What are you doing? He's like, yeah, 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 hold this. And I gave him three books on Rome. And he's like, what's going on here? And I said, when you get up tomorrow morning, we'll be in Rome. We're getting on a plane to Rome tonight. And so he was so discombobulated. And I knew, and we went over to Terminal E, and I knew he was going to call his mom and tell her that Mike's taking me to Italy. Now, Garrett's mom is the worst liar imaginable. So I said, all right, Cheryl, we are going to have to work hard on this one because you have to pretend you knew about the trip to Italy, but not the engagement. So there's like a multiple layers of lies happening here. You can do this. So I had to coach her ahead of time. So we did that. We got on the plane. And I said, all right, Garrett, we can do whatever trip. This is your trip. We can do the local thing. We can do the touristy thing. You pick what you want it to be, and we'll do whatever you want. 
My only rule is halfway through the week, we're going to go to the Amalfi Coast. So half the week in Rome, half the week down the Amalfi Coast. So, okay. So it was Garrett's trip. He planned whatever he wanted to do. It was supposed to rain every day that we were there. So we had our raincoats and our umbrellas, but it didn't. It was sunny and beautiful. And we thought, oh, thank God. So we're out and about, and finally it comes to Saturday. We're supposed to leave for the Amalfi Coast at about 2 p.m. Our train left. And Garrett wakes up and he says, okay, before we leave Rome, the one thing I cannot leave without doing is going to the Vatican. I really want to see the Vatican. And I thought, on a Saturday, great. Okay, we are going to try this. Let's try this. So we get over to the Vatican. Finally, finally, one day it's not supposed to rain. So we are so grateful we're not lugging our umbrellas and our raincoats anymore. We get out, we get into this line, and I ask someone how long it is. They say it's going to be about two hours. I said, Garrett, they always exaggerate. It's not going to be that bad. They're just trying to scare you. We get in line. It starts downpouring. We don't have our raincoats. We have nothing at this point. It's supposed to be, the one day is supposed to be nice. So we're sitting there, and we have to buy a 10-euro poncho just to wrap around Garrett's camera because it's going to break. I am getting soaked, and now I have to pee. And I really have to pee, but I cannot get out of this line. Not at this point. And Garrett's getting hungry. And we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting some more. And finally, I have to pee so badly, we are at three people from the entrance. And Garrett said, uh, we shouldn't pay like $40 to go in. I mean, we're going to be in there for like 10 minutes. We don't have enough time. So after two and a half hours, we get out of this line. So we literally stood in the rain for two and a half hours for nothing. So, okay, no big deal. Let's just run over to one of the restaurants. We'll grab something to eat. We'll pee quickly. We'll head back, and we'll catch this train. We can't miss this train because it's the last train of the day. You know, there's non-refundable tickets. We have nowhere to stay here. It would be like $1,000 we lose, so we cannot miss this train. So um, we go to all these restaurants, and sometimes in Italy, especially in Vatican City, some of these people can be a little particular. And so nothing is opening until 1. It's like 12.45. Nobody's open until 1. So fine, I don't even care about food. Can I just come in and pee? Nobody's letting me pee. So I'm like, oh my God, I, fine. Let's just get back to the metro. Let's get back. We've got to catch this train. So we go over to the metro, and there are people standing outside in the rain. And I asked them in Italian, what's going on here? Like, why are you standing in the rain? And they said, oh, this is a delay between these three stops. The only stops we needed. I thought, perfect. Okay. We are walking home, speed walking home at this point. So we get a little map out. The map is disintegrating in the rain. I'm trying to read street signs that are etched in Roman letters up into buildings as it's downpouring and I can't see anything. And where the Vatican is, the Tiber River turns a few times. It's very windy. So long story short, the bridge we wanted to take went one way. The bridge we took went a different way. We are now further away from our hotel in Rome. I have to pee so badly I cannot sit still. And all I can think is F this. I'm not proposing today. I'm not wasting this. Like I have spent four years of planning and thousands of dollars and it's just not happening today. And so as this is going on, we stop bickering. We can't remember the way. Garrett's hungry turns to hangry. I've got to pee so badly and we're still in the middle of Rome so there's no like alley I can go into. And I'm thinking, why is this happening to me? And now, before I left for this trip, a Hindu friend of mine told me to pray to the Hindu god Ganesha. She sent me a prayer, and I said, okay. I did this prayer that she had asked me about. I kind of forgot about it. So in the middle of Rome, we're bickering. I'm thinking, why is this happening to me? And I look up, and I kid you not, an entire side of a building in Rome is painted with a mural of Ganesha. I'm like, okay. I'm going to take this as a sign. There are obstacles here for a reason. Something is going on here. 
So long story short, I remember this piazza. Garrett remembers that one. We find our way back to the hotel. We run upstairs, pee, grab our bags and a power bar because we can't even eat lunch now. We've missed that opportunity. And we go over to the metro to take it to the train station. And I go through the turnstile. We bought weekly passes so that, you know, it would be cheaper. Garrett goes to go through the turnstile and he says, oh, my God, it was in my front pocket. It's disintegrated now. So he can't get through. And I'm thinking, I can't get back. It won't let me back through. So I'm like, okay, it's a Saturday in a Roman train station. No one's stopping to help an American. So I was like, let me scream to you how to get the machine into English so that you can buy another ticket. So I'm across the turnstile screaming. He finally figures it out, puts it in. It doesn't work. So like, Garrett, we have like one more shot at this. So he goes through, he puts it in, it finally works. So we get through, we take the train over to Roma Temini, which is the main train station in Rome. So busiest train station in Italy. There are like 30, 40 trains going at any given time. It's a very busy train station. Okay, cool. So we get over there and um, I was like, Garrett, I'm going to go ask if what I've printed out is enough or if I have to exchange it for a physical ticket. You just look, this is where it will say platform and you're going to tell me where we're going to go. We have about five minutes before the train leaves. So I go off, I come back, it's about two minutes left, nothing's posted. And now I'm freaking out because everything before and after it says delayed if it was delayed. Ours says nothing. So we can't confirm that's delayed. So I said, Garrett, at this point, we go through security. We run up and down all 40 trains and we just hope to God that we can find the right train and jump on it. So we go through, we run up and down all the trains. We cannot find our train. We are freaking out at this point. And so I run over to an attendant and I was like, please, can you please call it in and just find out the track number? He's like, no, 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 I think you're confused. I'm not confused. Please just call this in. So he calls it in and he said, oh my God, your train is leaving in less than a minute. Run. So we are disgustingly sweaty and wet. We have all of our bags for Italy and we are running down this platform. I kid you not. I wish I was exaggerating this part of the story. We jumped onto the platform and within 10 seconds, the train took off. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm breathing heavy. I haven't eaten. Garrett's just starting to chow down on the power bar. And I think, F this. I'm not proposing today. Like, it's not happening. This is not, I mean, I've put thousands of dollars into this. I've spent years of playing. It's just not happening. And then Garrett just turns to me as he's eating his power bar and said, you know, it's so weird for everything that went wrong today. And a lot did go wrong. You would have thought we would have turned on each other, but we didn't. We worked together as a team. Isn't that weird? And I thought, oh shit, now I have to propose today. So we took this train down about three hours to the Amalfi Coast, and I transferred his watch, I bought him a watch, into my raincoat because God knows it's still raining. And we get out, and we still have to walk a mile to our hotel in the rain. But at this point, I don't care. Like, it is on. This is happening. I have decided it. So we're walking this mile in the rain. We check into this hotel. We go upstairs, put our bags down. And I said, hey, Garrett, do you want to go check out the rooftop? Who in their right mind would want to check out the rooftop at this moment? Garrett's like, I, I guess so. But I'm like, this is happening. Like the first time he sees the Mediterranean, I am proposing. I've decided it. So we get up there. Now it's only drizzling at this point. And I said, hey, Garrett, go check out that castle in the distance that you obviously can't see through the fog. And so he turns around and I get down on one knee. And at this point, I have no plan. Like, I feel like every plan I had was shot to shit. So I'm just going to wing it and I'm just going to say something really heartfelt. So we turned back around and I said to him, you know what, Garrett? I'm not going to lie to you. I woke up this morning and I planned on proposing to you. 
And then everything went to shit. Literally everything that could went wrong went wrong. And I just thought, fuck this. I'm not proposing to you. I have one shot at this. I have spent thousands of dollars here. Years of planning. I have one shot at this. I'm not going to waste it on today, on this day that went so wrong. And then things did go wrong. And we started to working together as a team. And you reminded me that we are a team. And I realized I don't just have one shot at this. I have a million shots at this. Because every day for the rest of my life, I'm just waking up. I'm asking myself if I'm still game to do this. And I'm asking you to love me. Today is just one of those days. So I brought you to the most beautiful place that I know that could potentially rival your beauty to ask you, will you marry me? And he said, maybe. No, he said yes. He said yes. And then I showed him a uh, date stamped picture of me and his mom that said Cheryl approved to say, you know, I went down there to ask for their blessing as well. Love that story. That was a wonderful story. Oh, and you still like each other to this day. We still, as hard as it is to believe, we still like each other so far. But no, we uh, have a really beautiful life here. We have um, a condo that we love and two amazing little dogs. Chihuahua Italian Greyhound mixes who are little terrors. Um, and yeah, we're still so far so good happy. I, I really love that. But that's a really good point about relationships, though. And, you know, seeing how you work together through that difficult time because traveling will test mm -hmm. you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. As someone who has been uh, proposed to on um, <laughs> in Spain at the mm -hmm. Barcelona Zoo where the albino gorilla that I really wanted to see, what we got there two months after they died, oh. <laughs> was proposed to in front of the <laughs> empty cage. Um, didn't go quite as well as yours. So <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's the story you're telling today, right? That's why I always tell people I have a great engagement story of no intention of my own. It wasn't like I did these great things to make it happen. But I think that's the great thing about love and relationships is that even the horrific moments sometimes turn into beautiful stories because they're, like you said, they can bring you closer together. And how did your friends and family take it when this, you know, two supposedly um, straight identifying men yeah. fell in love and and decided to be together how, how did that go with everybody yeah you know like i said every this is now eight years ago so everything's glamorous in retrospect um not everybody was super supportive initially some people were very surprised of course some people um it took them a while to get there and so i won't name names today but you know it was a struggle and i think it was another one of those moments where we really had to lean on and rely on one another and support one another as maybe family members weren't taking it so well or had questions. And um, so I think it was another, I think for a lot of queer couples, that is something that comes up a lot where it, the couple has to be supportive and helpful with one another because it's not always going to be a smooth road. And people do have learning curves. And I've really um, learned to be patient and forgiving or more so. Not saying that you have to accept anyone's bad behavior by any means, but I've learned to really... Um, hold people lightly and realize that there's so much growth that they can have. And they have had so much growth. And I've been so proud of so many people in my life. In fact, I'll tell you, my grandmother, who is 93 years old, she um, is from a small town in Italy. She never knew anyone who wasn't, you know, of course, cis, straight, white, Catholic. Like, this was her life, right? So um, even for my dad to marry a Jewish person was, like, sacrilegious. Like, this was so crazy to her. So, you know, she's come quite a long way in her journey. 
And when we bought our condo, we bought a one bedroom and we knew we couldn't, if she was coming over, we had to tell her, right? You can't lie your way out from one bedroom. And so my dad was so nervous about this and he told her in Italian and her reaction was, they paid what for a one bedroom? And so, you know, it really just warms my heart that, you know, I think like anything, it's why I love telling my story. That's why I love telling stories. I think humanize, and that's why I love this podcast. Humanizing is so um, empowering and powerful. And when people realize that all people are just other humans, right? Same struggle, same, you know, figuring their shit out. Nobody is perfect here. And we have beautiful love stories and devastating stories and everything in between, then it's harder to objectify, right? It's harder to hate somebody who's just a human. And I think that, um, I think that's why it's so important that we continue sharing queer stories. Yeah, I, I so agree with you on that. And I love your grandmother's story. That's, mm-hmm. that's so awesome. <laughs> so I want to thank you so much for being here. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before we go today? Uh, yeah, I think that I, I love to always say at the end of an interview is something I've learned in my journey is you never have to try to be yourself. If you're trying, it means you're being somebody else. And I think that for me, it doesn't mean that life is going to be effortless and easy, right? But it kind of reminds me of coming out, right? So there's all this work and struggle and striving, but it's to bring you closer to yourself, to bring you to something that feels natural. So even the struggles should feel natural in some way. They should feel like we're coming, becoming more of ourselves. And I think for so much of my life, I thought that whether it was related to queerness or related to something else, the parts of me were wrong or I had to kind of try or fit this mold or fit this model. And I just want to share like, your story is probably very, very different than mine. And that's awesome. That is so beautiful. And I just am so grateful that we have a world of infinite lived experiences and infinite wisdom. And we never have to try to be ourselves. That when we're hanging out with a best friend, stuff flows out effortlessly. And that's the life I want everyone to be able to lead. Oh, I absolutely agree. I love that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, thank you for being here to witness another story in the life of our community. Thanks for listening to Queer Voices. Our goal with Queer Voices is to help our youth know that they're not alone. Our suicide rate for LGBT plus youth is as much as eight times higher than hetero youth. This is not acceptable. When our youth find acceptance, this number drops significantly. Save a life today. Show your child or an LGBT youth in your life that you care. Make sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes so we can help get the word out. Sharing stories, making connections, saving lives.